amplified. You're now listening to Failing Ads Up with your co-hosts, Antonio Romero and George Jr. Ibarra. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Filling Ads Up podcast. My name is Antonio Romero, and alongside with me on every single episode, I got Junior Ibarra. See, I, I put in the R's every once in a while. You're starting to add them in yeah, every so. every now and then, huh? You need to add that Latino spin to yeah, it. Yeah, a little yeah. spice to it, huh? <laughs> roll, roll, roll the R's a bit. Yeah, exactly. Got a little bit of rolling in. Got to, got to. Roll yeah. into the Failing Ads Up podcast with the yes. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yes. So, uh, Junior, how, how's your day going? It's a beautiful Friday here. You know, we have had some... Uh, Okay-ish weather. I say okay because it's been raining a lot. Yeah. I, mean, I like, 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 like the rain every now yeah, and we then. Yeah, we need the rain here just in the aspect of, like, everything needs to turn green. So I love seeing this. Uh, every, every you know, we have lots of seasons here in Iowa, so it's cool to kind of see all the seasons. Just like in business in general, you have lots of seasons, right? So anyhow, today, today's been a good day. Today's been a good day, and then later we have some volleyball action going. So Oh, yeah, yeah, we, yeah. we just joined the uh, volleyball league, so... We're going to be diving, bumping, spiking all of it, huh? Right. I'm going to hey. spike every ball. Hey, <laughs> tying it in, I mean, the rain the rain clouds bring the, the flowers, you know. I mean, yeah. The failing adds up. The, the rain clouds, the thunder clouds, the, the rain is what brings the sun. Everything. All those so, analogies apply, right? So right? we're super excited to, to be talking about this guest today, and he's already adding value right there uh, and uh, spinning off with the analogies. And so I'll go ahead and make that introduction and – so we have Jared Huseman with us. Uh, he's a commercial real estate professional. He's an investor. He's a serial entrepreneur. Mm. And this is kind of cool because I've actually known him for a very long time. And he has my mad respects of the type of person he is and the, and the work ethic he has. So now everybody gets to learn about what he's done, how he's grown and where he's at. And he's one of the fastest growing commercial real estate advisors and agents here in our metro area. Uh, and he's just getting started. So uh, I, with all, without further ado, we're going to get right into it. So, Jared, welcome. Welcome. Uh, good to be here. Good to be here. Glad to be here. Uh, yeah, I've known you a long time. Uh, back when we, we got a- licensed as agents, I think, within three or four months of each other as it was basically before yeah. you were a junior. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> no, you, I, so how'd you meet him? As a junior or not as a junior? Well, I'll, I'll add some uh, like I some little insight to this. So like, you know, while I was still an engineer, I was out looking and investing at properties and and got connected uh, with a fellow that will at some point or another introduce into this world too. And his name was Caleb, and we'll leave it at that for now. Um, and through that world, uh, some other investors too guy named Ryan and other other investors. And I just kept hearing like them talk about these like teenagers that were investing in real estate and their names just kept popping up. They're like these there's these twin brothers that are investing in real estate and they're like nineteen and they're already on like twenty four doors and all this stuff. And I'm like, man, who are these cats? you know? And so eventually you got to shake hands because the the Des Moines circle of investors is pretty small, just like almost in any market. You like you figure out who the players are pretty quickly, right? And so that's how I first remember meeting these guys is in that small group of investors that were doing lots of deals. Because I think between all of us, we were doing like 60 deals like a year or mm-hmm. more, right? Yeah. Um, and so then I got to meet them. I'm like, oh my God, they are 19 years old and they're buying tons of properties. And that's my first like memory of I this. Think, I think we were 20, 
23, 24, though. I think we weren't quite oh, 19. Really? We were a couple years in. Yeah. Because um, I, I started at 18, bought my first house at 18, um, used some savings to buy that. Dad co-signed the loan. Then my next two deals I did by myself. And so, I had, wait, so wait, at wait, 18? Wait, let's, let's, before we get into that, though. Like, cause we're like, oh, I, you have a, a, co- a super cool story mm. to share a, a what, around what happened during that time. Yet, like, we kind of like to start with like some pivotal moments in your life, like of how you grew up that maybe shaped you who you are. So sure. like, what are some of those moments, whether you want to start when you were a kid or middle school or high school or whatever it is, like w- whether it's memories with your parents or whatnot, like there are there moments in time that kind of help shape what you believe, who you are, and why you became sure, an entrepreneur. Yeah. Well, I mean, it probably all started one day when mom and dad loved each other very much. You know, <laughs> and that, you know, it just oh, led to twins. Um, no, uh, at the end of the day, I was um, – uh, uh, Donald Trump says this a lot in his book, The Art of the Deal. He calls himself part of the – I think he calls this – or he says some to the lines of the effect of – I was part of the lucky sperm uh, group, right? So, and that that's me. And I'll be honest here. Like, I was super fortunate. Uh, I give a lot of credit or credence to my family, how I grew up. Um, my grandpa, my maternal grandfather was a, a home builder in Anamosa. He just passed away this past year. But was um, 60 years of building homes and apartments in our community, uh, in the six-year period, built over 400 homes. Oh, wow. So do some math on that. It's like eight a year. And and where was this taking place? Uh, Eastern Iowa. It's over Anamosa. Um, oh, okay. He actually has built, we did the math on it actually when he passed away, he built one out of every four homes in our home in our hometown. Wow. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. like So you walk through the neighborhood and one out of four homes was built by That's your crazy. grandfather. Yeah, crazy, right? Um, and so... And ironically enough, my dad was always an entrepreneur too. So I say reason maternal grandfather. So my mom's side was very entrepreneurial. But my dad always had a, a bug for entrepreneurship as well. And he started his own electrical contracting business, was electrical, you know, owner for small business when uh, I was five or six years old. And so I grew up around this whole idea of entrepreneurship, of, of owning your own business for a long, long time. And how I grew up was... Very simply, I mean, dad would go work, mom would work a full daytime job, come back, take care of me and my brother for dinner, and then she'd go into the office and do office work for my dad because she helped as an admin. Mm-hmm. So mom basically worked two jobs and raised us while my dad would go out and travel. He would leave Monday morning, he'd come back Friday night. So I didn't see my dad during the week at all when I was a kid. Not until I was probably 12, 13 years old that I started seeing my dad. Like the idea of growing up with like my dad just wasn't common. He was always there on the weekends. So we always had family time on the weekends, and dad was very present on the weekends. But during the week, mom and dad worked. So the idea of, like, volleyball or, like... Any sort of sports. Yeah, any sports like that. Or, like, my parents being around during the week just didn't... Was foreign to me because my parents worked. And that's how I grew up. And that really solidified a lot of the belief systems my brother and I actually created and we still carry to us is the idea of, like, you just work. And it's like, well, well what do you mean? Like... Well, because that's all that's you how, saw. That's all, that's all we up, saw. Yeah. Like, I mean, my, my parents worked from a very young childhood, and then they instilled us also the entrepreneurial spirit by how they were. Now, what's interesting enough is um, I still remember a lot when I was 13 years old or so. Dad, at that point, you know, he had spent eight years building the business up, and he started to get into real estate development at that time. And my dad, just finding your nature, wants to spend time with his kids, spend time with your boys, right? So, what he would just do is he was like, I want my boys to go with me just because I want to be with my family. 
I mean, that's part of a reason why he also wants to teach us the business. So what he would just do a lot is he'd just say, I mean, I remember this vividly still. This is so cool when you're younger. You know, hey, boys, what, what are you doing in school? And you're like, not much. Like, you getting A's? Yeah, because we both naturally got A's. We were good students. All right, cool. I'm going to call you in sick today. We're going to go meet a, a city mayor. We're going to go talk about a TIF we're doing on a development project. Or I want you to go meet some banker. And a lot of times these were like VPs of banks or mayors or engineers or architects. And his rules of thumb were always you have to be business casual and you have to um, shut up and sit down, basically, <laughs> and ask me questions afterwards. So, like, and then in the summers when we didn't um, have, you know, sports, we were working for dad or grandpa. Dad or grandpa on the construction. We were the gophers. We were the, the bitch workers. I mean, we had to go do all that little stuff. Um, and then during the school year, we'd go on business meetings. So we kind of had that white-collar experience during the school year going on these business meetings. And then in the summers, we were the blue-collar grunt workers doing all that work. So we kind of got the best of both worlds. And what was interesting about about that time frame as well that I've since learned as we've gotten older and experienced as well is that people are, aren't the pedestal you put them on. You know, sometimes we put these VPs of these bankers or these engineers or these architects, these mayors, these presidents, whatever it is, like at a high level and think, oh my God, like these guys are just so far above wherever I'm at. And as I started getting into my business career in my teens and in my 20s, I started looking at people like people. Just normal. Just normal people. Yeah, everyone's normal. Everyone's the same. And that's going to tie back as I go further along. I'll I'll tie that back around in a second later on. But that's just how I grew up. And so that happened. Um, My mom started reading and getting into this guy called Robert Kiyosaki when I was like 14, 15. Um, And she encouraged me to read this book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad when I was like 15, 16. And I was like... I'm not going to read that book. I don't need self-help. I'm a 16-year-old kid, and I got all the answers. Like, yeah, like yeah. who needs self-help? <laughs> yeah. That's for those idiots who don't know who they are. And I know who I am. I'm 15 years old. I got the world conquered. Right. <laughs> I don't need no help. Um, and so, again, so my dad was doing his development stuff and also had his electrical business. At that time, mom started getting a little bit into rental houses. And my grandpa had already owned a few rental properties as well and houses over the years, so she kind of had that background. And grandpa was always very encouraging of my dad and mom in their investment career and their entrepreneurship, which in both sides of the family wasn't common, um, both dad's side and mom's side. So mom gets into Robert Kiyosaki, which dad, I'm 14, 15. At this point in time, all I've ever seen is 12, 13 years old, work for my dad and grandpa in the summers. I once in a while go means with dad. I just saw his time with dad. I just was like, cool, I'm out of school, time with dad, like double whammy. <laughs> No point thought about business. That's all you cared about was yeah, just spending like, time with him. Yeah, it was just did, cool. Did, uh, curious to know on any of those those trips with, with dad, like, did he ever, like, show you up on anything, like, electrical or construction? Oh, oh or, my like, God. Because uh, my dad was an electrician, and so I have some stories of, like, how he taught me some things, and then he would just be like, yeah, you don't know what you're doing. Can he let you just shock yourself or what? <laughs> <laughs> he never did that. He never did that. But there's one thing that I, I did take to heart, that actually say that now that you say that. I remember we were joking one time. Um, we were on a job site. This is like more a couple of times. And we joked because my dad was always on the phone. We'd go to a job site and dad would be on the phone the whole damn time. And we'd all be the like working away, yeah, yeah. working away, right? And we're always like, yeah, dad never works. Dad never works. And then, son of a bitch, the dad would come over and he would get more done in 30 minutes than we'd get done in two hours. Yeah. <laughs> and he would just come over and he'd be like, just remember, boys, that's why I'm the master. Because yeah. he was. He was a master electrician. 
That's why I'm the boss. That's why I'm the the owner and the leader. And so that's a skill set I think that's really important, I think, for all of us. Um, having gone through two different things I learned from that is we sometimes, and not always the case, sometimes we think our bosses don't always know as much as we know. Like, oh, we know how to do this. But a lot of times the boss knows this. We've had questions before, like being yeah. agents, <laughs> when we have some of our teammates are like, you don't know how to make cold calls or you don't know how to make a call or you don't know how to – sell a listing or do this and you're just like all right little pipsqueak like <laughs> sit down this. and shut up <laughs> I got all you. the hours that you did before that they, <laughs> yeah like they didn't just, see. just just watch like i got this um and also one thing that taught me as well is um one thing my dad and, and grandpa and mom all instilled in me was they were never too good for any role now one that my dad taught me on those job sites is i'm going to ask you to do something just because I'm asking you to do it doesn't mean I'm not willing to do it myself. I don't want to do it. I don't want to be the gopher. I don't want to go do this. But just because I'm asking you doesn't mean I'm not willing to go do it. So they I put s- their pride aside, no matter what it is, right? They're the, that type of leader is like, I. there's nothing, like I see that as a common theme mm-hmm. as we like interview people on this. Yeah. It's like, you see the people that are successful, they are willing to be the photographer, even though they're the ones hiring the photographer yep. or whatever that case might be. And they like, if, if it needs done, I'll get it done if no one else can do it. Yeah. Right? Well, I mean, a case, a case in point, I think about all the time is like, look, do I like working nights and weekends? Do I like working Sundays? No, I do believe I am a, a man of faith, a man of Christian. Do I believe in taking a day off the weekend, the Sabbath, whatever you want to call it? Um, with that being said, am I willing to put the work in on a night weekend? You better believe it. Am I, am, or am I the guy that's like, um, hey, you know, I don't want to take all the trash, but you better believe I will. And I'll actually, this actually ties into a point um, I remember a lot. And this ties back to just how I was raised. This is something I forgot until you brought it up a little bit. But I remember one time we were cleaning out a house that a tenant had vacated and they destroyed the house, which never happens, but it'll happen yeah. if you've <laughs> owned a rental properties. And um, to give context, the woman was a bit sizable in her physique um and uh the toilet was a little bit wobbly and so we had to rip the toilet off and replace it and there's the wax ring you know how toilets work there's a wax ring that protects it it keeps the seal so all the water goes down if that toilet rocks then all the water urine feces will seep into that wax ring and this ties back around i remember my dad when i was 15 or 16 we were fixing up a house to get turned over and dad looks at the wax ring and goes, you're going to rip that off and, and put, get ready for a new wax ring. I said, how? He goes, use your hands. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Like, you, have you seen that? I'm not touching that, you know? And dad's like, yeah, you're the one doing it. But I knew he was willing to do it himself. Like it's not, he gave it to me as the role. I was the grunt. I had to do it. Would he do it himself? He would have, but he had me to do it. And then there was a whole other story there where uh, I didn't have a glove. And I said, well, what do I, what do I use? I said, how many gloves? He goes, well, just don't touch your face. <laughs> um, it was like, okay, rip. that's really disgusting. And go wash your hands as soon as you can find a place to wash your hands. Yeah. Um, so really disgusting. But again, it was that, that discipline of like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to outsource this to you. But you better believe if you don't do it, I will. And if you don't do it, I'm going to be pissed. Mm-hmm. And it was very much like... I didn't, I, for me, how I grew up and I'm not sure how, how you guys grew up as well, but how I grew up is the disappointment from mom and dad was probably worse than anything they could have done to me. Like disappointment of like, I'm disappointed that you didn't step up. Those words 
Hurt way more than oh, anything else. That, that was way worse than any kind of spanking or or yelling. Like, they could just be like, okay, then go away. And it was like, ah, oh, shit. Yeah. So so that's kind of how that happened. Um, But, again, fast forward a little bit. I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad when I was 16. And I joke, it was just to get my mom off my back because every, you know, everybody wants their mom off their back once in a while. And God bless my mother. I tell a story a lot. And it was day like today. It was kind of cloudy, kind of rainy. And I'm sitting there, and it's like in the summer, and it's raining, and reading this book. And I jokingly say, you know, the heavens opened up, and then the, the light came down, and God's <laughs> voice came out, and it was like, Jared, this is what you are meant to do. <laughs> and it was like, it was a light bulb moment for me because prior to that, I'd always wanted to go into the Air Force and be a pilot. And, and fly for the Air Force and fly the F-16s. That's what my dad worked on when he was in the Air Force. Um, and I always wanted to go that route. And I had that moment where, it, and it really was, it was a moment for me where it was just like, this is it. And I, I've never felt anything as clear as like, well, I have a couple of things clear, but that was one of the ones where it was very clear to me that this is what I'm supposed to do. And I say that because ever since then, at no point, people have asked me over the years sometimes, like, how do you get through the tough points and the tough, the, the, the shit that we're all going to have to go through in this life and business, whatever you want to call it. And it was like, what do you mean? I don't understand why you even ask that question because I've always known this is what I meant to be. It's you your know, vision I, that you have. No, it's just, it's just, there, there's no going back. I mean, it's like people would ask you, like, I'm sure they'd ask you, Junior, like, man, how do you manage being an entrepreneur and a dad at all times? And you're like, I just do. Like, there's not a, there's not a question mark of like how I manage it. It's I, I am going to do it. There is no, no, yeah, no, there's no matter what happens. You're right. You now that I never like, really looked at it like that, but you're right. Like people pose that question and I'm like, well, this is, this you is know, it. you don't know anything else other than that. Like you're like, it, there's no, there's no quitting. Like that word doesn't even, it's not an option. doesn't even cross my mind. Right. Like, yeah. And I remember this cause I remember like, I remember when you and Trish got married and you had Max, your first, you know, and you were an entrepreneur and you were already busy and already growing this IRG that you were building. And at some point, I'm not sure if you had a moment or not, we don't need to go into your story if you'd like, but at some point there was a moment and you're just like, this is my life. And there's no question mark about it. There was no, there was no like sitting down and thinking through it. It's like, no, I am a dad and I'm a business owner and there is no, question this is i'm both yeah yeah and and don't get me wrong and and, and, and you know i don't want to speak on your behalf the the there does there are moments in time uh, have you had those moments where you're like damn am is this what i'm supposed to be like should i do something different or like should the the when i said like the word quitting doesn't cross my mind it does you know but you know like it's an it's a human thing mm-hmm Yet you know that you're built to like be have the discipline to just overcome it. Like you're not, ne- you're never gonna actually quit. Right? Yeah. Like, I don't know if that ever crosses your mind. You're like, man, is this worth it? Maybe that that. that oh question, yeah, yeah. Is it worth it? Not it- necessarily quitting. Like, is this sacrifice worth it? And then you know, but because we all encounter those those moments in, in time and business and in life, mm-hmm. is this worth it? Yet you're like there. Spoiler alert, it's worth it. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> Spoiler alert, it's worth it. I can so, say that. Yeah. And I'm still very much on the journey. Um, so, but, like, just just to make sure we're all, like, like we know the timeline of everything. This is at 16 when you had this moment. This moment, of, yeah. Yep. This is what I'm doing. And this, um, the moment was owning real estate? It was, it was real estate. It was real estate entrepreneurship. 
I'm not going to say real estate ownership, real estate investment. It was real estate entrepreneurship. But you didn't exactly know what that no, meant. No, I, I just knew it was real estate. And looking back on this, why I always lead with very fortunate with my grandpa and my dad and my mom, because I already had real estate as a background and real estate entrepreneurship as a background, both from the construction business, from electrical business, from my mom ownership, dad developing, owning stuff, grandpa owning stuff. I already had so much of the real estate in the business in my blood right? that I didn't even realize it until like that moment. And even then I, it's more after the fact I've realized like, Oh my God, like people ask me why I'm in real estate. I'm like, well, why does a fish swim? Like you're just in water so much. I didn't realize how much I was around real estate until later on in life. Well, also probably because like that was just normal to you, right? Where these, yeah. like everyone has their own life where things are normal to them. Yeah. Just accustomed to it because that's all they know. Yeah, exactly. And it was just, it was just, and not not everybody's gonna have maybe that that like I have this like a light bulb moment. Not mm-hmm. everybody's maybe gonna have that. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. And if you do have it, you're very fortunate. If you don't have it, doesn't mean it's wrong. But I know for me, that was a moment where it was like, this is what I meant to do. And this is why people have asked me too, like, well, why don't you do um, you know, like private equity or hedge funds or stocks? And I've looked into all those over the years. I, I absolutely have studied the other business models, but I, I always come back to real estate and I'm like, why? It, it's what I know. I mean, that's just simple like that. Like, it's just what I know. Do I enjoy business? Yes. Do I enjoy? It's almost like saying like, why do you like the color blue? Because I just do. Yeah, exactly. It's like, why? Because it is who I am. And I was fortunate to have that experience where it's just like, I know that. And I've had time to reflect on that. Um, So, so at 16, you had this light bulb moment. And mm -hmm. can you kind of take us on the journey of, you know, what followed after that? Oh, yeah. Um, So that was 16. Spent two years then um, learning about it. Uh, we did do a Rich Dad um, training classes over the weekends. And this is a time I was uh, a sophomore going into my junior year of high school. Um, and perspective-wise, and it's all these, this goes back to like little things you've learned in the years. But like at that time, it was weird because I was already having the, the mindset for business and the mindset for real estate and the mindset to be a career. And, and was your brother very similar to he, that too. Or? He he was, but he wasn't as much as me. He's kind okay. of a little bit, little bit behind me. He still has that very much. He's doing some really good, cool things right now. I was just talking to my mom about that actually on the drive over here, which is also really cool. Getting some stories about family as well, maybe. Um, but what I was going to say on that is that we all look at this now, like looking back, and you're like, man, that's so cool that like you were 16 doing this. Okay, I want to put it in perspective here. You're 16, 17 years old, and you're having no friends, no girlfriend no time because literally your nights and weekends are spent like studying real estate. Like everybody looks at that and they're like, Oh man, that must've been fun. And it was like, yeah, I, I did do sports and I had friends, but my friends on the weekends wanted to like go out and party. I was one reading a motivational book called rich dad, poor dad, or I was reading right. some book about the economy. They don't see that behind the scene part. Yeah. And like, you don't realize the fact that like I legitimately didn't have my first girlfriend until my senior year of high school. And then we broke up because of fight basically. And we lasted three months. I didn't have my really first girlfriend until I was like out of college. So everybody looks at this and is like, Oh my God, like that was, that's so cool now. And you're like, yeah, but I gave up all my friends, all my party time, all of my experience in the romantic environment because I was dedicated towards this thing called real estate for my junior, senior year, freshman year, sophomore year, junior year of college, high school, all that. And that's a really good point because I feel like a lot of times people don't understand the amount of sacrifices yeah. it actually does take. And that's the, that's why I want to bring that up is that like everybody looks back and it's so easy for us all to look back and be like, wow, 
that was so, so cool. But in the moment, you have to realize what you're giving up. And everybody looks back on it now. It's easy to look back on these things now and be like, wow, it was so, it's such an easy choice to make until you're actually in the moment and you're making that choice. You know, I mean, we ha- we're lucky here. Um, and also, we have a professional football player named Marshall Yonda. He's since retired. Hopefully makes Hall of Fame. He's already been multiple winning championships with the Baltimore Ravens. He tells a story one time how he stayed in school when he was, a, I think, a sophomore at NIAC all throughout the summer to study and get his grades as so he could play football for the University of Iowa in the spring. And he goes, looking back, it was a great experience, and it actually changed the trajectory of my entire life. But he goes, in the moment, I was a 20-year-old kid, 19-year-old kid, giving up my summer to go to school and work hard. Like, I gave up that. Like, he goes, in the moment, it was a really hard choice. But, like, looking back, it was a great choice. Yeah. And so that's why I wanted to bring up the whole point of, like, from 16 to 18, and even further along, I spent these these weekends going to these trainings throughout high school. I'd do high school during the week, and then the weekends I'd do these trainings. I would literally go to school. I'd work out in the morning at 5 a.m., go to school, go to football practice, soccer practice, wrestling practice, whatever it was. Then after that, I'd go do dinner, and I'd analyze deals with my parents over the dinner table. And then I'd look at deals on the weekends and nights with them as well. So, like, these are all things I was building up. And I was giving up a lot of friends, a lot of family. What it did do really cool, though, was it made my family really close. So my brother, my twin brother, my fraternal twin brother and I, mom and dad and I were all really close. And then um, fast forward a couple years later, I get out of high school. I'm 18. Now I can sign a loan. So, <laughs> so I buy my first house. Um, and you were working? Uh, I was working for the summers and the summers and okay. stuff. I only ever had one job, and it was for the subway uh franchise uh the, uh, oh, the yeah, subs, the, the subs yeah, yeah yeah subs and uh sandwich did that artists. you were yeah. you were there five dollars yeah, 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 right? <laughs> i did that for about three months and got and then i quit because i hated it um so i've never had a true job i've had jobs for my grandpa and my dad but i've never had a a true yeah, yeah job yeah. job so too yeah. yeah so i don't understand that concept um so did that for a little bit but really wasn't my thing um now, with that being said, one thing I want, I want to tie back for a second here. This is important. I remember I did get my, my job at Subway. And one thing my dad said to me when I was going to get this job was, like, I don't really want to get a job, but I kind of want to make some extra money. My dad just said, you know, Jared, look at it this way. Go to Subway, work for them, and figure out how you can own a franchise or figure out how you can build the systems to go build your own, own business someday. So, like, that's the kind of environment I was around. Like, my dad yeah. didn't say, like, go get a job. It was, like, go figure out what you can do or how you can add value or what you can do better. So, like, that's kind of the environment I took that in. Um, but anyway, fast forward, 18, buying first investment house. Now, perspective-wise, um, again, so everybody understands this. This was a little house. It's a one-bed, one-bath, 350-square-foot house. Um, in a little town called Oxford Junction, Iowa. It's a town of like 800 people. I bought it for $16,000 and put $4,000 down. Um, and I had a loan of 12000 on it, and I put a few thousand dollars into work, and I rented it out for 300 bucks a month. Um, and that was my first investment property. Um, and so, and one of the, my favorite sayings is, um, my, my two favorite investment properties are always my first one, because I became a real estate investor that day in the smallest capacity, but I could say I was a real estate yeah. investor. Yeah, I own yeah. a house. <laughs> I'm renting it out. Ooh, I'm going to conquer the world. Got you, Donald. I'm yes. coming after you. I'm 18. <laughs> um, so that's my that's my favorite investment deal. And then my my other favorite investment deal is my next one. Um, it's always my next one. You'll ask me like, what's your favorite investment deal? I'm like, well, the first one and the next one. 
Yeah. Those are my two favorite that's deals. Cool. I haven't heard that before. That's cool. Well, that's like, um, it's always my joke. I made this joke today. I said my, my favorite uh, business travel, my favorite trip is next, is my next trip. My, my favorite, my favorite year in business is my next year in business. And you know, my, my favorite kid's my next kid. My, 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 favorite, <laughs> my favorite wife's my next wife. Right? I mean, that's how I always got to say, it's you like know, that extreme. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, that's what they, they, there's, there's a law of diminishing returns. I found if you get married more than a couple of times, your wealth diminishes very quickly. It's a shocking, shocking number. The more times you're married, the more wealth. Maybe that's why Donald's kind of, you know, going slowly downhill. He's been married four or five times so, <laughs> uh, or three times. That's one been. theory, right? Um, so then like, so after your first one, did you get the bug? Uh, or what, what, what happened after the first yeah, one? Yeah. So like, the first one was, I was 18. And you just graduated high school or you're still in high school or I uh, just graduated. I used some of the money from savings of my graduation ceremony and then working to, to buy my first one, bought the first one would have been August of 2009. Um, so, first, so that'd been the first one. And I graduated in May, went to college here in Des Moines, um, in September, 2009. And then over the next year and a half, I did two more deals. Um, in and that was around the like the market crash too. Oh huh? yeah, yep. I remember that very vividly. Still, it's, it's interesting because I still remember those times vividly now. And I'll tell you what, um, perspective wise, looking back back to the failing ads up, you put a guy like me now in a world like that again today, and man, I will, I will buy everything. You'll oh, eat my. it up, huh? Oh, it's gonna be yeah, a, a buffet in front of you. It'll be a fun time. Um, <laughs> but uh, again, just perspective. It's always twenty twenty. But anyway. Uh, bought my next two. I bought a duplex and a sixplex. And this is all by yourself still? I, those two are by myself. Um, first one, dad did co-sign the house yeah, with yeah. me, but those were by myself. Uh, convinced a couple owners to sell me on contract. And uh, it was funny. I remember the sixplex. I was, uh, I was 19, 20 years old, and I couldn't even drink yet, and I was buying a sixplex to uh, rent out. All the tenants were older than me by about 20 years. So that, was, <laughs> that was fun. And again, this is all, you're getting all this mentorship from your, from your family, essentially? Yeah, from or, the family, but I was very clear on this. Is something we'll go, on and go into in a little bit here, but I was very clear on um, I wanted to do it all by myself. I and how were you like figuring these things out? Like, how were you learning how to do this? Part of it was through the classes and books I had read, and then the other part of it was just making a lot. And this is I can't go into all because I don't know all of them, but just making a lot of fucking mistakes. Okay. Um, the one thing that I will say is that I'm very disciplined in a few things. And I'm very religious about a few things. So I'm going to tie this back for a reason here is that the reason I'd found these two deals that I could buy on contract was because I had been diligent and disciplined about I did not miss an investor meetup group. There were a couple of investor meetup groups in our market in Des Moines at that time. And I went to all of them religiously. I did not. And they were like church. I did not miss them. And this is important, I think, because as we mentioned, we met, you know, networking. That's how we met. And to this day, some people have asked me, like, how have you built up this huge network of people across the state, actually, even across the U.S. anymore and across the region and Midwest, but even, the, again, the U.S. and as a nation. And I am, like, I am diligent about networking and putting myself in the right rooms and the right spots. And do you have any, like, tips or advice of, like, how to network? Like, like advice on how to do that? Do it. Just do it. You but is there anything specific that you do? Uh... There's a couple of things I can give uh, some tips and tricks on that, I guess. But um, at the end of the day, like I'm a natural actually by by my case. I used to be an introvert. I become an expert over the years. So it's putting myself in situations where it was like I was the quiet one in the back and the the weird one. And then slowly over time, it was like, hey, I kind of like you. You're seem like a cool guy. Let's start hanging out in the back room together. 
And then like there's two of us talking in the back. Now there's a third person. Now there's a fourth. So like just go find the other misfits geeks in the room. Just find two people. Like people look at these things too. Like they got those rooms. They have to know everybody in the room. Like you don't need to know everybody in the room. You just need to know one person. And it's it's actually better if you don't go with someone else because then you're going to naturally lean on them to be that person. Like that's when I would encourage somebody. If you're going to go out and network, go to a networking group where you don't know anybody. Because if you go by with a with a friend, you're gonna always naturally lean on that friend. That's gonna that's gonna keep you barricaded. You're better off to go to these groups by yourself, and then just go find one person that you can connect with in that place. That's it, just one person. And then when you go back next time, you're gonna find that same person, say hi to them again. But then just go find one more person that second time, and you just keep doing that over and over again. And again make it religious, and you keep doing that over and over again. And when you go to enough of these networking groups, you're gonna find. Some people go to all of them, some go to none of them, some go to them once in a while. But if you keep doing this over and over again, it's amazing how, how vast your network can get really quickly. And then again, that's how I built my second and third properties was like, hey, I want to um, buy properties and someone sold me some duplex and a sixplex on contract. And then I was able to, through some savings and some talking to people and whatever it was, get them to finance me with essentially no money down. Um, or very little money down at that point in time, um, which looking back, I don't actually encourage that. Um, the no money down, everybody, everybody wants to do it because they have no money. Um, I actually encourage people to use their own money more often than not nowadays. Um, I don't encourage you to do as I did, but um, but yeah, that's I guess how I would say there. Um, and I can give even more examples as, as it's gone on longer and longer, how that's paid off. Um, even as I moved into commercial real estate as a broker, this is fast forwarding a little bit here, I remember it was five, six years ago, I walked into a room full of commercial real estate owners, agents, brokers, lenders, et cetera, by myself, knowing nobody in that room. And it was so scary. If you saw me in that same room today, I can say I had everybody in that room. They all know me, shaking hands. I can work that room like a freaking, you know, I don't even call it, work it like anything, like a freaking call girl on the street or something. I don't know. But um, I can just work that room because I know everybody. Because again, I just built up that same skill set over time. And, um, and be willing to look like an idiot and feel like an idiot. And that's just part of how it works. And don't get me wrong. I still do once in a while, I'll go to a networking group by myself and feel like an idiot. Like those, those emotions don't leave you. You just get stronger. You just learn how to handle it better. Yeah, exactly. So, so then like, before you get into the commercial stuff though, like, so you bought a 300 square foot house, mm -hmm. you bought a duplex, Mm -hmm. you bought a sixplex. Mm -hmm. You were still in your early 20s. Uh, at that point, I was still 20, yeah. You were still 20. So you had nine doors mm-hmm. by the time you were 20 years old. Yeah. So then, like, what's happening in your world when you get to that level? Are you? Did you continue to buy? Like, Well, this, that's where it starts getting interesting, actually. So this is all, again, perspective-wise. I'm going to college. By this time, I'm in my second year of college. In my college, I went year-round. To get done in three years. I specifically chose that college because it was a year-round school to get done in three years. So I don't actually have a senior. I had three years. So I was about a year and a half in. Um, at this point, I was pretty much all online. And I was doing all online. I was doing, you know, my management, this stuff too. This is where the story gets interesting is, and this is something I've learned more and more years that you can't really teach this, but it's a, it's a, it's a hard skill. Um, I've done a couple of good things right over the years and a lot of a lot of things wrong. Um, what happened is this whole time, again, I'm networking, I'm networking, I'm networking all over, all over, all over. And at that time then, it came to where I owned the nine units. 
a sixplex duplex in this house. And I found this little house that was foreclosure that I was going to buy and fix up. And I made an offer $31,000 cash. And the ARV after repair value was 65,000 at the time. It's, it's on Southeast first street, 1603, little, <laughs> little Italy there. You can see exactly where it's at. Um, little brick, red, red brick house. I drive by once in a while. I've got pretty fond memories of that one because that was a deal I remember. I made an offer, and a couple of things about the house I, I can I can think about as I reflect on it was, I think they were asking fifty thousand for the house, and I offered them thirty one, for it, and the agent said they'll never take that, and I said give it a shot, um, made a low ball offer, which so that nowadays wouldn't work as well. Back then it was still in, the, and this yeah. is 2010, 11. This is still some stuff tough, tough on the market. Yeah, um, and I also made the offer for cash. And he goes, do you have the cash figured out? Yeah, I said, nope. <laughs> Going to do a little bit of jump and figure it out. Um, and uh, what was cool about this, this is where it starts getting really interesting in the story, is uh, what I did then is I actually, and this is going to get me in trouble, actually, a lot of hot water here. For <laughs> You'll understand why in a second. What I figured out is, without even realizing it, was it's a lot easier to ask a billionaire for a million dollars than to ask a millionaire for a million dollars. So what I said was, I need 30000 to buy this house and a couple thousand of, of renovation rehab. Instead of me going to my cousins and aunts and uncles and parents and all these people that ask for money, who can I find that's already doing business that has a lot of money? And I was like, I know a couple of commercial brokers who do apartment sales. I'm going to call up them and see if they want to invest in me, with me in this little house. And the commercial broker I'm thinking of, he said, no, I won't invest with you, um, but I know a guy who might. And the guy who might at that time owned about 2,000 apartment units free and clear. Wow. Um, and I knew who the guy kind of was, but I didn't know really much about him. And I met him, I'll never forget, I met him for, for lunch, and I had a whole proposal put together. It was like 15 pages, like I'm going to buy this little house, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, and I slide it across and I'm like, and I'd like to have $31,000 if you're okay with it. And he looked at it and he's like, okay, when you need it, buy. I said, well, like in two weeks, maybe three weeks. Mm-hmm. He goes, okay, well, if you need tomorrow, I'll get you tomorrow. And at that time, I like left that and I was like, so excited. I'm like, oh my God, this guy just gave me $30,000 and I can't believe it. And I'm 21 years old and he funded me. And if this goes well, you might give me more money. And this is, this could be great. Um, fast forward, we end up doing, um, within the next, uh, give or take 18, 24 months, a little over $3 million in cash between us two as transactions. Um, that's, that's, that's around the time I think I met you. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> when, that's when things started getting really interesting. Yeah. But again, what I had learned from that moment and I'd done it by accident, but what I learned from that moment was you have to think bigger. So I had this conversation with someone as well, even just in the last few weeks, someone said, well, I want to go out and do some more apartment deals or more syndication deals. And I said, well, think bigger. And they were like, well, none of our friends have 100000 in the bank. I said, stop asking your friends for 100000 Go ask that business owner for a million. They make deals all day long. They want to get their money to work. Don't go ask someone your friends to do this. Go think bigger. And be willing to, f- and this goes back to the failing ads a little bit, be willing to like, you're willing to fail a little bit. You're willing, you're willing to, to get no's too, right? Yeah. And like, they're going to tell you no's and you're going to have to work a little bit to get into that room. But like, that's who you have to go. You got to go where the guys, you got to change the environment, change the room you're in. Why, why do you think he said yes to you though? Um, first off, looking back on it, it's a 
drop in the bucket for amount of money he has. Um, this gentleman at that time, without going on all the details of it, but um, had about $15 million of cash just sitting on the side that he could just play with. So $31,000 and $15 of cash is a fairly <laughs> small amount of money um, perspective-wise. Um, but I think what it was was he saw that I had experience. I'd already done some deals by myself with my own money. It was first thing. Um, I had some grit in me. I also had a plan, education. I didn't just come to him with like, hey, I want to buy this house. And hey, man, how you doing? You know, whatever. Like I was, again, back to my skills. My dad taught me. I was wearing business clothes. I was dressed up. I had a polo on. I had jeans on or whatever. I had slacks. Think of what it was, you know, and I'd come to him with a proposal and a plan of what I was going to do. Now, looking back on this here as well, I want to, this is some important to add to our story here. The entire time I was, I was doing these deals, I was trying to go to bankers and convince bankers to give me millions of dollars to buy apartment complex and house because I saw there were deals out in the market happening. And I was like, I want to buy these deals. And I, I remember walking into one bank specifically. I'll even say the bank, and I'll even say who it is. Um, it was uh, um, Bankers Trust uh, right off University Avenue and 50th Street, West Des Moines, right next to our office now. Yep. And I'm going to say your name because I still give her a lot of credit. Luann Gafford, I think she's since retired. Luann Gafford, I walked in there. I was 19 years old. And I said, I want to buy commercial properties. And to give her, and that stands for a reason, she gave me the time of day. I got laughed out of so many banks at that. I'd walk into banks, literally, in suit and tie and say, I want to borrow money from you to do deals. And they'd say, do you have any income? Nope. Do you have any assets? Nope. And this was in 0809, not realizing it back then. These guys were already frozen, not giving money to their best borrowers, much less a 19-year-old kid. So back to failing adds up. Um, and so... Um, I'd walk into these meetings and I remember Luann, I'll never forget. She gave me the time of day and she called in one of her executives and we sat down and talked about lending and basically kind of told me without saying it so bluntly, we can't help you. You're 19. You have no money. Um, but that failing again, this goes back to the failing adds up by going in all these banks, I was preparing myself to actually present myself an individual. I approached him the same way I would approach any bank. I was dressed up. I had a plan. I had a property. I had, here's my financial. Here's my budget. Here's my rehab cost. Here's everything I was going to do. Now, the bank said no because the bank had their policies and procedures and we can't blah, 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 blah. But it was the same process. And also what that's done for me over the years is by being very unbankable, I've had to learn how the banking system works. So most of the time now, I can tell a banker how to do his job better than he can. And I can also tell an appraiser how to do his job better than he can. Not because I'm better, just because I have failed so many times at getting an appraisal correctly done or failed so many times at getting money where I'm like, okay, you're going to analyze this deal and you're going to analyze it X, Y, and Z. Why? Because of one, two, three equals X, Y, Z. And here's why we're going to do this because it's going to equal that over there. We're going to do this over there. And this is going to create this over there. Can I point out a few things? Yeah. Because here's a lot of the things that behind the scenes, I, I think like, because, you know, they're like just kind of to provide the perspective from listening mm -hmm. because there's, you know, there, there's going to be that like 19 year old that's mm -hmm. going to start asking for money. You, you were different. You were already executing. Oh, yeah. Right. You already had nine doors. You were analyzing deals when you were 16 years mm -hmm. old. You were studying, doing the things you were pushing down, not having girlfriends mm -hmm. and not not going out and partying. You were doing all these things that 
had him say yes, right? Like he saw that because I, I, I see this a lot with the, the younger generation mm-hmm. right now. They're like, I want this, this and that. I'm like, what time do you wake up? <laughs> like, what are you studying? Like, what are you pouring into yourself? Sure. That makes you not average. Oh, so. Right. So you stood out to him for a reason. He didn't just be like, here's 31 grand. Like you were like, you were prepared and you had been doing studying deals since you were 16. Oh, so, and, and, and that 16 year olds don't do that. Well, right? and, okay. Perspective here as well. I want to get again, to give some, some context to all this time in my life before I met this investor. Um, this is in college, freshman year, sophomore years of college when everybody's having the fun, right? Perspective wise. I lived in a one bedroom apartment by myself. I had a folding table as a table and two chairs. Um, I had a, old couch I was that had been left there in a bed. I had a 19-inch box TV that was a VCR and an old Xbox with video games. I had like four of them, I think. But I had a little, I mean, I said I had one TV that was this big, by this big, by this big that I got when I was 15 years old. I brought to college with me from when I'd gotten, I was like 14 years old, whatever, for a Christmas present. Um, I had basically no TV, though. I had very minimal Xbox, like three games. I had some movies, and I had a laptop. So... And again, I was in online school for the most part my sophomore year. So I'd get all my homework done in a matter of like eight hours a week. So then realized that I now had how many, what, 24 hours a week, 24 hours a day times six, seven days, take away sleeping, take away my homework. I was stuck with 100 hours a week to sit there and nothing but watch TV, my boring part. My, I had no money. I was broke. So I got into one skill set I got into, and this ties back to around, is one skill set I got into. Um, I would work a lot during the weekends. I worked a lot Friday nights, Saturdays, and Sundays. Because during the week, I'd keep myself busy with other work, with doing tours of properties and with some homework or whatever it may be. Or I'd, or I'd read books. I read a ton of books. I'd go to the library. By the way, everybody forgets the library. Like, holy shit, you don't need to buy these books. You know, there's a lot of books at the library you can go read. Like, I used yeah. to have library memberships to all the libraries. Just so, you know, I used to walk around and read, read, read books in the library too. And not just business books. I'd also read fun books because those fun books expanded my horizon, my viewpoints, but we'll go into that another time. Yeah, I, used to, I actually used to close out the library back in the day. Yeah, so, yeah, see? Yeah. Um, but what I used to do, and I remember this actually still, and this, to this day you'll still see, you'll see it probably even tonight to an extent. Um, I remember this vividly. In college, I was so broke. I couldn't afford I couldn't afford anything. For months on end, I usually lived off ramen noodles and peanut butter and jelly. And that was kind of my, well, it was literally peanut butter, jelly, and ramen noodles, water, and black label scotch. Johnny Walker. <laughs> that was a reason. That's actually a black fun story. Label scotch with your ramen noodles. Right. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> um, had, to, had, to, had to drown the sorrows out somehow. Um, well, my dad always told me, Jared, you deserve the best. If you're going to drink alcohol, drink the best. Means you're gonna less chance to get drunk on it, and then less chance to have a hangover. Um, so I always drank black label. So I just that's what I splurged on was my black label scotch, and then I would have ramen noodles and peanut butter and jelly for my food for months. But Friday nights, what I would do is I'd be bored because I just my friends are all at partying. I couldn't afford it. I had no girlfriend, um, so I would just pull up the MLS and I would just look at deals for like three hours. It got to the point where, and I think you can do it now still too. But at that point in time, and I think I could still probably do it now, um, it got to the point where I would just, an- I'd look at a house and I'd analyze the deal, look at pictures, analyze the deal, analyze the deal, analyze the deal. You already knew what you were going to offer. And to the point where, um, yeah, I mean, to the point where I, I mean, it got to the point where I could even just look at a house and go yes or no within two seconds. I didn't need to do the, 
ARV and then my repair value and my closing cost and then my MAO, maximum allowable offer, is this. Like, at the point, you're just like, yes or no. I mean, I could just look at it and go, I mean, I could just click, 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 click. Yes, 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 yes. No, 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 no. Yep, that's the deal. This is the deal we're going to look at here. So I'd look at hundreds of houses at night, Friday nights. I'd go, I'd work from like four until midnight most times because that's when I just would want to work. And to this day, because I instilled that habit, you'll see a lot of times Friday afternoons, I, I won't work a Friday for some reason. I'll like, I'll slack off till three or four o'clock and then four or five o'clock hits and I get, I get like rejuvenated. You start working. <laughs> and I work Friday nights. Like, you'd be surprised how even still to this day, I still work so many Friday nights. And there's something about working a Friday night that I, I sadistically get off Do you think on. It, it's because you know everyone is not working? Like it I gives know, you that advantage? Yeah, it does. And at, sadistically speaking, I'm a little sadistic on this. Like it does get, I get a little bit of a, a, a high off working Friday nights when I know everybody else is partying. And I also know I go into Saturday, Sunday feeling a lot better when I know I've got all my shit done on Friday night. I can actually, I, I deserve to take off. Now, anymore, I work Friday nights and I work half day Saturdays. And then I still kind of work Sunday nights anyway, so I don't really still take off. Um, but those were things I was doing in the background too, to kind of give perspective and context. So when I did find this investor, I had spent literally a year and a half analyzing deals all my nights and weekends. I would spend, um, I, would inter- I would go to all the networking events. I was trying to talk to banks all these times. I was reading books. And this part's actually kind of interesting too, is that I actually spent a lot of this time alone too, which is actually important to the story because I spent, I was very, entrepreneurship can be a very lonely, lonely field. You got lucky. You had Trish and some, some people with you as well yeah. that like help, but like it can be a very lonely world. Absolutely. Especially when you're that young. And this, this is actually some stories I can tie into that as well. Back to, it's also a mistake I made, but um, I also had to learn a lot about myself in that time frame. So there was a lot of nights and weekends where you're just journaling. You're th- and I was just thinking about the life I wanted to create, the life I wanted to live and just kind of visualizing that. And I'd spend the whole, w- there were weekends I would spend, I wouldn't talk to a soul from Thursday afternoon when our school was done till Sunday night, Monday morning. I'd spend three days not talking to, not say a word to anybody. Literally, I would, I would be in my apartment and I would just literally read, watch a little Netflix and study deals. And that's all I would do. I wouldn't, I wouldn't talk to anybody for three days. Man, not a and, single word. Man, and so that's the stuff people don't see, right? And so, like, I'm, I'm so glad you went that deep and that detailed because people just see instant gratification like oh you know he owns a ton of real estate now and this and that they didn't they didn't they didn't hear all this stuff which is cool so let, let let's go back to the the story here so because i know there's a lot of meat on this mm. so you acquired over three million dollars worth of real estate mm-hmm. uh, by the time you got to be 24 mm-hmm. right it sounds like yep do you still own that real estate? What happened? Oh, this what what, you, okay. we're still we're still getting into the some of the fun stories here. We're having you got into some of the real <laughs> real fun. This is when this this is when this fan was still spinning before the shit hit the fan. Um, so uh, uh, so the the blessing and the curse. So I done a lot of things right to find this this investor, this gentleman, um, and he put a lot of faith in me. And and I completely, admittedly, unequivocally fucked up that trust. Um. To my own detriment, um, what happened is, though, is I did a couple of deals right with him, and three or four deals went really, really well. The problem with that is, is those deals went really well, and he got to the point where he trusted me to do deals, to the point where I could just call him, and within 24 hours, I could have a quarter million dollars in my account. Hey, I'm doing a deal. I got a house. I want to buy it. When are we closing? Next week. Okay, I'll wire the money tomorrow, and we'll do the paperwork after we close. 
And so at 22 years old, 21 years old, when you can literally make a phone call and raise a quarter million dollars in one phone call, um, it gets a little bit, it's, it, get, it gets an ego boost. It gets a little bit of arrogant, a little bit to your head to the point where I didn't, it was, it was a power I didn't respect. Yeah. Um, it's a power that I've learned to respect now because I have felt the repercussions of that power um, in a very negative way, which we're going to go into a second here. But it was a power base that I don't assume. And this is also why I have, over my years, I have actually very little respect for businesses and people that scale quickly. Because most of the time, people who scale quickly as a business owner, as a person, not always, but generally speaking, they don't require the respect for that power. Now, in a rare, rare instance, you'll find someone, an example, like an Alex Hormozzi, you know, who's on YouTube, like, once in a while, you'll someone who has that perspective, who has that respect for that power, and they, they stay with it. Once in a while. But I'll tell you right now, more often than not, people do not have respect for the power that they are given at a quick, when they build something quickly. And so you'll see this, and you'll see this all the time throughout any businesses. Anytime you've had a business, scale quickly. And by quickly, I mean in less than seven years. That really just like moonshot kind of level. You're always like, here comes a big fall. You can just you can just you can just see it, and I know because I've experienced it. Um, so anyway, I met this investor. The first four or five deals go really right, and then all of a sudden it starts becoming. I can start calling for money, and I start seeing this this power. Um, and it started getting started building up this this uh, this house of cards. Basically, what happened is, and I started buying up a lot of deals. And at that point in time, I was about 23, 24. We we just kind of started meeting there. Um, I did do the math on it one time. I don't remember exact numbers on it, but um, it was something like between 18 and 24 in that six, seven-year period, I did like 60 to 70 transactions. Um, and I, I don't remember, don't ask me anything more than that because I can't tell you. I At that point, we were moving so fast. We were buying a house every month. I don't know what we were selling, what we were buying. I don't know when always where they You're were. You doing most of this on your own? Or? Uh, my brother had joined me after college. Uh, he had graduated. My brother joined me. I had built from nine, and I had this house. That was my 10th one. When I hit about 21 units, uh, my brother joined me. Um, and that would have been about a year and a year and a half after my bro- after I had met this investor. And at some point in this, you got your real estate license too, I'm assuming? Nope. Okay. Nope. I was always just an owner. Got it. Um, and my brother did a couple of deals on his own with the same investor. And then I had my, like, I think it was like 19 or 21 doors, something like that, somewhere around there. He had his couple of duplexes, and we all the same investor. And we decided we're going to partner up as brothers and do this together. And then we scaled from that was about 21, 22. And then we scaled from 21, 25 units, whatever the hell it was, to like something like I'm going to screw it up because I just don't remember, honestly. Um, something like 72 or more units um, spread over like 25 or 30 properties. I don't know. It was houses, duplexes, small apartments. I don't, I don't remember. Um, because it was just such a whirlwind of a couple of years. Um, all I know was, um, sure felt fun. Um, <laughs> and it sure felt like we were like walking on air. Like we were the, you know, the Kings of the universe. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I'll tell you what, it, it, it comes crashing down hard. It comes down crashing down quick. And what happened is, um, when we were about 24, about the time I met you actually just, Actually, I met you, I think, about a few months after this all happened. Actually, you don't even know some of the story that was happening. Well, I, I told you some of it, actually, now. Um, we met, I believe, in, I want to say, 
uh, December or February of 2014, 2015, around the time, somewhere around Sounds there. About right. You were joining KW at that time? Or? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I was, yeah, had, ju- oh. had been a year out of engineering and was just, had got my real Would have been license. October, November of 2014 when we met, I think. Yeah. And I, I, I know why, because what had happened is we'd been turning and burning all these times. And then it was, actually, I guess I, I think back, I remember these dates now. It was about August, September of 2014. Uh, my, my business partner, my investor, um, he'd been doing a lot of loans, not just us, but other people. And he had a lot of moving parts in his business going. He had scaled from a, an, an individual to a full-fledged lending business, almost like a small bank. And he hired a guy to help him run this operation. And the gentleman, to his credence, he actually taught me a lot about business. But the first thing he did is he walked in and said, we're making no more loans. We're done. And so it was a faucet of just this massive water coming out. That was all this money that just dried up overnight. And every flip, every house we did, we had deals in escrow that were going to close that they were like, yeah, we're not giving you money for that. Like, well, we're closing in three days. Yeah, you're not getting money for that. Figure it out. And it was like, what? You're not getting, we're supposed to close in three days. Like this money's supposed to happen. We're going to lose earnest money. Well, figure it out. Um, And it was like, oh, crap, scramble moment. And again, I don't blame, looking back, I don't blame, but in that moment when you go from all of this money is just free flowing, I mean, call to it's gone in a day, all these deals start drying up real quick. And the, the, the machine only worked when the machine was turning. When the machine stopped turning, that, that house cards falls really quickly, which by the way, we're going to have that same happen pretty close in our market now with some especially multifamily guys. We're, this is a future pace for, I see these wheels turning in the same manner. Um, there's some, there's some hurt coming. Um, but uh, anyway, that comes crashing down um, and basically said, I want all my notes paid back in the next three months. And at that time, it was $3 million or so, give or take, of, of real estate. And I had done some bad deals because we got out of hand and some of the interest was starting to eat up. And the real estate value was about $2 million at that time. So 24 years old and a $1 million in debt that I did not have. And then met this guy, and he wanted me to buy his house on 54th Street <laughs> and fix it and flip it. And I was in the backyard trying to talk my investor into lending on this property, which he said he would not do um, because he had shut off the loans. And, and, and it's weird because, like, I just got my license. I came across this deal that was a, a big fixer-upper, and it was, like, a big one, right? And I was used to buying, like, small deals. and Big in, in, sort of in the sense of price? Price and size. Okay. Like, it was also like more of a luxurious neighborhood and, and they had like a luxury product that they were putting out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just like, well, this is, this deal's too big for me. And I don't, I haven't really entered that luxury realm. And, and I was like, these guys, I seen their finished product and it's awesome. And I'm like, this fits their realm and mm-hmm. I bring it to him. And, and I didn't know none of that was happening behind the scenes. I was <laughs> right. just like, these guys are buying deals left and right. <laughs> yeah. And, and this goes back again to what this goes back to again, the failing adds up, but also back to the story. What happened is that investor said no to that deal. So I did what I was good at. I called the commercial broker up. This one, I'm getting tr- get myself in trouble. Called the commercial broker I know and said, I'm doing this deal. Who do you know that will fund me on a deal? And she said, call this person up. And I called up him and sure enough, he funded me the deal and it all went fine. And again, that, that gentleman is one of my mentors. He's since passed away. Um, and I really miss him a lot. He was a great mentor to me. In fact, he gave me the money for that house on a handshake. Oh, wow. um, he told me it wasn't worth his time to actually file it. And that was, I think, a $350,000 house yeah. we did. And I remember him telling me, oh, it's not worth me even. Here's, here's a check. Just pay back whenever you want. And I was like, damn. But again, 
thinking bigger. This guy had made so much millions of dollars that he just didn't think in hundreds of dollars. He thought in tens of millions, which is, again, that's actually a case and theme point I want anybody to listen to. Like, you want to think bigger, you got to think a little bigger too. Like, don't think – you also cause more failure that way, but failure adds up. Um, that's what I've heard at least. Yes. Um, <laughs> wonder where <laughs> I know. Right. So anyway, so we do this house, um, long story, really short. Um, the note investor call all of our notes do we were bankrupt basically. And we spent about two or three years, um, building out of that and negotiating with him and trying to make the deals work and get some money back into him and stuff. Um, long story, really short, didn't end up working out. We had to give a lot of the properties back and we never, declared bankruptcy, but we basically had to threaten bankruptcy because we were at the end of our wits end. And this time, um, I'd become an agent. That's when I became an agent. It was right at the time we did that house. Cause I was like, we can't keep flipping houses cause our money had dried up. So I need to find another way to make money that I can't flip in houses. Well, these agents need to make a lot of money. Those, those greedy agents <laughs> and they all suck anyway. So I'm going to go be an agent. Um, Became an agent, did a couple of transactions residentially wise, thought to myself, you guys are way too overworked, way too underpaid. And I always knew I had done houses as a way to get to commercial. And so I was like, well, again, thinking bigger, like I might as well just go do commercial. So I started doing commercial right off the bat. Now what I didn't realize about commercial is that takes like three to five years to start paying out. I remember <laughs> when I first when I first approached you about commercial, you're like, you're not gonna make money for five years. Right. Yeah. Or you tell that and it's I've heard that like, you know, the residential agents have a 9 out of 10 failure rate. Mm -hmm. I've heard in commercial it's, like, 98%. It's, like, it's massive, yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. Know, just because you don't make money for, like, three to five years. And so residential, if you actually, like, put your head down and get to work, you can make money in six to mm -hmm. 18 Because with commercial, the deals take so much longer, like, each they, one. They take so much longer, but you're also just – you're trying to – encroach on an entrenched market. A lot of these agents and owners have known each other for years mm. and you're trying to work your way. And it's not like, not, you're not, these owners don't work with anybody. These guys have made millions of dollars. They don't give their business to anybody. You've got to really earn their trust, earn their business to get in it. You don't just come out one day and sell the Taj Mahal. I mean, you might get lucky. If you're really lucky, you might get one or two there, but 98% of the time you're going to fail and you're going to have a lot of problems before you ever get into commercial. Um, all things I've learned, you know, since the fact. Yeah, yeah. Um, so then, so then you got your commercial license. So, what year was that? That would have been 2015. Okay. You were 25. Uh, at that point, I was 24. Was turning 25. 24. Okay. Yep. Okay. So 2015. So that, that's about eight years ago, mm -hmm. right? At yep. Eight point. years ago. Yep. So then, like, what's happened in that eight-year period? Like, what have you learned about yourself and your business? Because I do remember. Like one of the, uh, again, I kind of started off one of, one of the biggest reasons I, I respect you is your work ethic. Mm -hmm. And to this day, I still go into, you know, we have our own team office, mm -hmm. but when I go into the brokerage office, it's it's like you and like three other people. <laughs> yeah. <every time. laughs> right. And, and I remember still when you first started, you were there every, like, that's one of the things I've always known about. You always show up whether you want to or you don't. Oh, it's just, it's just discipline. I mean, it's the same reason I've been, I've been. I've been in the gym. I spend at least three, more like five to six days a week in the gym and I have since I was 13 years old. And people ask me again, why? And I'm like, for me, it's just a lifestyle habit that I, I don't understand why you wouldn't ever do that. Um, and it's just, again, maybe it's just because I assault my parents. You know, the discipline, just go to work, go to work, go to work, go to work. Um, one thing I will say I've learned, and this is where I get on my, my high horse a lot, um, what has changed from 2015 to 2023 now when we're having this podcast, the biggest thing 
is I've shifted my mindset on hard work, to be quite honest. Um, from 2009 to 2015, those six years, I was working hard, very hard. And we're talking six, seven days a week. We're talking 12-hour days. We're talking a lot of time spent into this. And again, I was making no money because all the money was going to pay back this investor and other people. Um, and uh, and I actually don't like the term, just go work hard. Um, because, and I'm going to say this as a, as a, as a compliment, but there are a lot of Mexican Latinos that will outwork my ass. You guys fucking work hard. <laughs> and you know what? And all credit to that, credit to that. But you know what? Working hard is only going to get you so far. It, it will it will open doors. There is no doubt. It will open doors for you. But I can tell you right now, one thing I've learned is that when you're an entrepreneur, you make money with your mind, not with your, not with your work ethic. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's changed a lot for me, what really has changed the most from the last eight years has been – the ability to work smart and hard at the exact same time. Not just work hard, work hard on the right things. And that was through coaching and mentorships. People taught me like, hey, don't just go out and and dig a hole to dig a hole. We're going to dig a hole that has some oil beneath it. Like that's, you know, let's figure out like why we're doing this and let's figure out what we can be intentional. The word we use in Keller's lines is be intentional, right? Yeah. And so it was what are intentional. The, so what are those those things that you're intentional with? Uh, everybody's that, different. At yeah. the end of the day, everybody's going to have a different thing. And it's all going. Yours? It's going all going to vary based upon what business you are in, um, and and what your what your career is, what you're working on. So it's always going to vary. Um, for me, what I would say is, if I had to be really clear on what I've gotten really intentional about, and this is something I learned from mentor again. At the same time, um, I was um, transitioning. Um, there's a couple of things I guess to say. There's so many. It's hard to. We could spend hours talking about it. Um, things I was intentional about was one, from 18 to 24, I was Superman, or me and my brother were both Superman. We wanted to do it all ourselves. And I, I wanted to always, I always said, I want to own 100, I want to own 100 units or 400 units. I want to do it all by myself. And now I own two deals, three deals, whatever it is. And it has nothing to do with me. I'm actually a minority owner in most of those deals. And I'm like, huh, my net worth's actually gone up a lot more. So I'm more intentional about actually creating partnerships and teamwork. Um, I have like since thrown out that whole idea of like do it all yourself. Like, it's it like a common thing we've been hearing is like letting loose of the control. Like, oh, it's a team. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Like, I mean, like there's no. It's 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 a cliche, but no one's a self-made you know person. Self-made. Now I agree to disagree. You can be self-made up to a certain point. You can be self-made up to a millionaire, maybe even a decamillionaire. But you get to a certain point beyond that, and you ain't reaching success without someone else's help uh, or someone else to build that. I mean, like, this goes back to hard work is not leverageable. Like, I can leverage someone else's hard work, but I can't leverage my hard work because there's only so many hours in the day. And that's been a big pivotal shift for me. And this is another thing I could say I got more intentional about, which this is a, a whole almost whole other podcast by itself, is I've learned to create, uh, create and treat Businesses like businesses and investments like investments. And too many people are a make a perversion of that and it's to their own detriment. And what I mean by that is, I say this actually all the time, it's one of the things I say all, a lot is, we look to the Robert Kiyosaki's cash flow quadrant. There's the E, S, the B, I. Employee, self-employed, business owner, investor. And everybody wants to be, generally speaking, the business owner or the investor, which by the way is totally false. You can make a ton of money still being any of those four quadrants if you know how to do shit right. Yeah, you're um, you're leveraging. At, yeah, but you, you could be an employee, capacity. 
and still make a ton of money as an investor. I mean, like Bob yeah. Iger, CEO of, of Disney, is an employee. He's making millions of dollars a year. Guess what? I could say that he as an employee is making more money than some of these business owners I know that have their businesses. So, yeah. like, don't yeah, – there's no did, one right way to do this. I even have teammates on my operational side that are have higher net worths than some of the people on the sale because they're – Making their money and investing it. Exactly. So, like, you can be an ENS and then and play the I game. But what I mean by this, I can say, is that there is there's investments and there's businesses. Investments, and this is why I come back to as well, what do investments really do? Investments create cash flow. Mm-hmm. Businesses create cash. Play the game separately. So if I'm going to flip this house, understand my goal is to flip this house is to create cash. If I'm going to grow this business, it's to create business income it's not to create cash flow it's to create income let's just be really clear on this i also hate the idea of net worth because because then the net worth in my opinion all it means is the ability to, to borrow to create cash like elon musk is like yeah he's a hundred billion dollar guy until tesla stock goes down by 40 percent, and then all of a sudden he's go from 100 billion to 40 billion in one day and all of a sudden his ability to borrow against that net worth means absolutely zero so net worth means nothing at the end of the day all business Anything breaks down to cash and cash flow. And when I got intentional about treating those separately and looking at them in a smart way, like, okay, what is my cash and what is my cash flow and how am I treating them separately? All of my investments are through partnerships and I'm investing for cash flow and I have certain metrics I look at when I invest for my cash flow, my real estate, my investments. My brokerage, my team is my business and I treat that like a business. That's two different things. So I've gotten more intentional and in working smarter on both of those different avenues for growth. Does that make oh yeah, yeah. sense? So, so let's talk a little bit about that topic though okay. about about creating your team. Mm-hmm. Can you kind of take us on the endeavor of that? Um, at the end of the day, it's just one of the facts of um, I'm still. This goes back maybe to some of those those sleepless nights or those alone times um, in college. But at the end of the day, like there is literally no fun or no joy in doing this thing called life by yourself. Like you need to have a wife and kids and family. And even then like it's fun, but then like, why would you go to work every day? Like your coworkers are usually sometimes your best friends, right? That's how, I mean, everybody can say their coworkers are usually their friends. Well, when you're a solo agent or you're a solo entrepreneur, like where's the fun in that? Um, Like I I actually had had the opportunity to uh, climb and summit Mount Kilimanjaro this past year. And I said to everybody, I said, you know, everybody tells you that, you know, they make this, all these analogies of like, you climb the mountain for the view and you, you reach the pinnacle of success and all this other shit. Yeah, it's bullshit. All that. <laughs> when you ever actually, and this is real life, I, I, I take this as a metaphor, but it's real life. Whenever you actually get to the top of that mountain, guess what that means? Shit, I spent seven days or six, I spent a lot of struggle getting up here. I'm probably miserable right now because in the top of Mount Kilimanjaro, I was not feeling good, by the way. Like your altitude is kicking in, you're tired, you're exhausted. And then you got to go back down. So you're like, fuck this. And you're at top of this mountain and you have this great view. You're like, wow, what a view. And you're like, ooh, I could have gotten in a helicopter and got the same damn view for a lot easier, <laughs> right? So you're like, so I, I relay that a lot to like the business world, right? And people are like, oh, I'm climbing the mountain for success. And you're like, man, the hike up really wasn't that much fun. The summit really wasn't that much fun. I felt like shit. I could have gotten the same, same results probably for a lot faster, now, here's where it got fun. The day after we, got, we summoned Mount Kilimanjaro, and you get 12 people that all just accomplished this big goal together, 
and we're all drinking banana beer and we're <laughs> celebrating and we're taking our first shower in like nine days and we're all hugging and crying together. That was where the fun came into it. So that's a powerful message right there. So like I'm telling you right now, like when everybody thinks like this whole like idea of like the climbing the mountain of success is fun. Like, no, it's not. Not, and without, it, not without other people to be on that journey with. Yeah, there's nothing fun about it yeah. at all. And there's nothing fun about even the the success at the top. I like a, a quote from J. Cole. J. Cole is my favorite rapper of all time, but I, I won't quote it exactly how he said it because he said some words in there that I, I can't say. <laughs> but essentially, he just basically said, like, what's the point of of being in first class if I can't bring my homies with me? Yep. Exactly. I mean, that's why we see all these people that have their, their entourage with them, you know, their, whatever it is. Um, I didn't want entourage is going to be, you know, moochers kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but I mean, I've always wanted to build a team. And there's also part, there's also a whole philosophical reason behind that where, like, I can only help. I do about, on average, like 12, 15 deals a year with my clients. Um, I can help 12, 15 people become millionaires through real estate, apartment investing. I do mostly apartments in the state of Iowa. Um, if I have a team of 10 agents, they all have 15, we, we, we can help 150 people become millionaires. So there's a whole philosophical concept behind how you want to build a team to help more people so achieve wealth. Did you have like some sort of shift or again, like another light bulb moment where you're like, I should create a team? Not or was it go back to like the journaling and stuff? It, it was not really. There was just always that. Uh, I mean, was, again, this is the philosophical reason behind it. But at the end of the day, it's a really selfish reason. The reason I want to have a team is just like, I don't want someone to do this with me. Yeah, yeah, there's just I mean, there's like it's it's no fun. Um, I mean, and you can hate him or love him. Um, but one thing I love about like some Andrew Tate and some of his stuff, he talks about him and him and is like, you know who I just with my brother Tristan, and they they all do it like those four or five guys all do it together. The top G's, huh? <laughs> yeah, and they're all like, and they, they all they all talk about. It. They're like, you know what's fun about this business is that when you reach the top, you're doing it with your friends. Right. So like. I could go and like, there's a whole field. I was like, yeah, I can help more people, blah, blah. No, at the end of the day, I just want to build a team because it's more fun to do it with five people than with doing it by yourself. Doing it by yourself. Um, and that's because I've reached the point back to the family that's up is that like, I spent some of those nights when I was in college by myself. I was doing all these deals by myself. I would be, when I'd also work a lot when I was younger as well, is because I didn't have the girlfriend or the party life. So it was like, let's go work. And then I'd be like, let's go do these trips by myself these cool trips of myself or let's go spend the night by myself. And it's like, well, I don't know what else to do. I might as well just go work. So when you spend enough time in, in the, the shit, I guess is the way I say it, you just realize you're like, I don't want that for my life. You know, um, I don't want to be, you know, going back to an empty apartment by myself and having no furniture and no food. And it's still different now. Or even having furniture and having food, but not being able to, you know, use share that furniture and share those ex experiences with someone else. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like I say this a lot here as well, but like um, back to Kilimanjaro here, I actually had a conversation with our team leader and some of the people. I said, man, I went to Mount Kilimanjaro by myself. I had a group with me climb it. And then I did safari by myself for four days. And safari was amazing. You're talking lions and elephants and, I mean, cheetahs, all, all these cool things. And I'm turning next to me looking at my guide going, wow. I'm sharing with the guy who's seen this a hundred million times before, right? <laughs> no, no fun. And I came back from that trip from Kilimanjaro even going, man, what if in like three to five years I can do that same trip and I can make it a producing trip where my top three producers go with me with their wives, their kids, their families. That'd be fun. Let's do yeah. that. You know, so that that's where I come back. I know you do a lot of traveling with like Ryan and his part and his wife and you're, and you bring Trish as well. Like yeah. that's the fun of building the team 
because you've spent a lot of the failure as an entrepreneur when you're alone. And I know, I know you understand this too. Like you understand what's like before I had, you had Ryan, you had the team, you're coming home at night and yes, you had Trish, but you're like, man, it's a lonely fucking journey sometimes. Yeah. You're putting in 80, hundred hour work weeks. Yeah. And you're like, this isn't even, this isn't worth the money. Yeah. <laughs> like it, it's, it's like, and you, you, yeah. I, I mean, not everybody has this path yet. Like the, the ones that in our ecosystem that I mm-hmm. see, like have the most fun. They're like, they're willing to like give a portion of that money to just be around other people that have similar values and mindsets that yep. want to go down a very, not exact journey, but like a, a similar journey and going in this, a similar direction. Right. Cause everybody has, still has different goals within yep. the team yet it like makes it so much more fun. Cause like we could technically like, I, I'm going to do this by myself and mm-hmm. I'm, you're still going to close 15 deals. Yeah. I, I could literally say right now, cause I know myself mm-hmm. and I know my discipline. I can do 75 deals by myself. Yep. Like I actually 80. And I say that because I did 80 by myself <laughs> one year yet. I don't want to, <laughs> well, I, I don't care how much money that is. It's that aspect of like one, we can all do it. Like we can do 40 each yep. and go 50, 50 on those 40. And that's going to be so much more fun <laughs> and so much more like we're also helping each other. Cause what's cool is like they, they, the, the, the vision starts to also kind of shape around the talent mm-hmm. depending on the direction, right? You, you, you kind of have a general vision, but the vision also starts to form like, Hey, why don't we do this? And you're like, I didn't think of that. That still aligns and heck yeah, we can make some money doing that or, or invest in this deal or get a little piece of that it's, or a little piece of that or a little piece of this. The biggest thing about that is, is and this is where we're some experience here is that as long as those visions still create of, are we creating the cash or the yes. cash flow back to yeah. the earlier thing. But like to your point earlier, I remember, um, we're, it's again, so many more stories here, but like, uh, I have a side business in the Cayman Islands, uh, that we built some houses. I mean, I mean, I remember meeting my partner, I was telling him vividly, his partner, Craig, we're, we're sitting here, we're in a place that's called the Sunset House. It's, um, south side of uh, Seven Mile Beach, Cayman Islands. And we're sitting there one night and we're both dead broke. I mean, we're, we're, we're like, we're living on credit here. Basically. Like I'm staying at his house on a freaking bed and he's renting it. And I remember <laughs> we sat there and the sun's the sun's setting and, and it's me and him and he orders a drink and I order a drink. And we went and we looked at me and they said, well, we're both dead broke. It's all up from here. Cheers. <laughs> and we actually, I saw him actually uh, last month, two months ago now. And we were talking about it. We were almost kind of both getting emotional. We're like, remember when it was, seven, eight years ago when we were both dead broke and we were cheersing to being dead broke and man, look at where we're at now. Like, look at where we're at. And like, there was a, there was a, there was a camaraderie that you have there with that team. Um, and going through the failures, like going through, remember, like, remember when you tripped up and, and we all, we all kind of laughed and we all kind of helped you kind of thing. Remember when we all made this stupid mistake here. Remember when we, we tried this one thing that didn't really work, but we thought it was going to be brilliant. Remember the first 10 Failing Ads Up episodes where no one could hear anything? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> literally. No. Yeah, like you just laugh all these things. Yeah. Um, but that's the thing is that like the whole point of of success or failure, it, it's, it's like the question, I guess it's the old saying, if a tree falls in the woods, does it make any noise, right? So here's the thing. The whole point of failure only matters if someone actually sees you fail, the whole point of success only matters if someone sees you have success. But if you do all those in a silo, what's it really matter? Damn. Yeah. Dude, wait, there's so many things that you've said throughout this podcast that we need to like slice out. 
Like, like you said a lot of really cool things that I don't, you don't, you don't realize you're saying some really powerful things. So, but well, I, like, I am. So, I mean, just, just, I mean, just think about this for a second. Like, let's say like, let's say we are just talking simply about failure and success in a simple philosophical sense of it. And let's just say you spent your whole life as a failure, but literally you did it in the woods by yourself and no one saw you. Like, what's it really matter? Mm-hmm. What if you literally spent your entire life in success but you did it with no one around you. Like, what's the point? Like, what if Henry David Thoreau, who wrote the one book, uh, Leaves of Grass, he had this great philosophical concept about, like, what life is about and these things. Too. What if he went to that cabin and he hadn't shared any, any of the success and the, the, the stories he had? Mark Serrano says he meditations over here on the table. What if he had all success, but he didn't share with anybody? Yeah. Like, success and failure by themselves mean absolutely nothing if we put them only in the silo of where they're at. Yeah. If we think about this, like the whole point of even podcast here is to share, yeah. to build a camaraderie, build a community, build a team. That's the whole point of life is to build something that we can give and share to other people. Damn, so cool. like, that's the whole point. Like, again, everyone's looking at like, talk about this is beyond just failure and success here, but like everyone's like, look at just failure or success is one of the other. And they don't happen in a silo. They don't happen in a box. Yeah. These are supposed to be the goods and the bads. And they're supposed to be shared with other people. I love I love your your philosophy. It's very similar to to, to even just our podcast, you know, about sharing and, and and some of the things I I believe as well. It's super cool. Yeah. So to kind of like, there's, I think there's we're definitely gonna have to have you back. I was saying, so many, <laughs> we, we, we literally went from like 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 the early years to like maybe up to when I was yeah. like 23, 24. So, and we kind of stopped from there. We didn't even talk about some of the, some of the failures from then on yeah, in the last eight years. We're going to have to come back uh, for sure uh, and have you as a guest. So like to kind of aim to wrap it up a little bit, like two things. What's next? If you want to kind of encapsulate what's next for you and your life and your world and your team. Sure. And two, if what are like one or two things that you would want to share with our followers out there in regards to your advice to to them for sure and they're all kinds of listeners right they're yep. not just real estate they're all yep. uh, not not just entrepreneurs some are athletes some are uh you know uh, you've all some ufc fighters and mm. stuff like that like so just in general like what are just general tips of advice for life itself that you would have so what's going on next in, yep. in your world and then those couple pieces of so i'll actually answer that with the same answer the whole way through actually um i'll give you one answer which actually will tell you the tell you the answer of my plan to the team so one of my first mentors when i was 15 16 he said something to me and i've studied it over the years he said the average overnight success takes 15 years and what i've studied now is that people tend to start having success right between year five and year seven of any career they choose to do. And the reason why is that's right around that, you hit about that 10,000 hour of mastery mark, right? And so even in this podcast, we've talked about the first seven years of my career, which is my first 10,000 hours towards mastery and my mastery of failure is really probably what it was because I failed a lot. Um, So that's the first seven years. So what kept me going through some of the bad times was the idea and the concept of 15 years to success, right? So I remember I said to a friend of mine one time, I was, uh, I was like, well, I can't stop now. He goes, well, why not? I said, well, I'm in year eight. He's like, what, what's, what's that got to do with anything? I was like, well, man, it takes 15 years to success, and I'm only in year eight. So fuck it. I'm already halfway. Like, I, gotta, I mean, why stop? I mean, might as well just keep going, right? And, and ironically, we're hitting year 14 now for my investment career and year 16 of my study in this business. So I'm starting to kind of have the, the rumblings, at least maybe, who, who knows, of that success. 
Um, as I've studied businesses and philosophies in the world, what I would say is it takes seven to, year, seven to eight years to start having success. It takes 15 years to start creating massive success. And it's going to take 30 years to change the world. And you start looking at companies, start looking at companies, start looking at Google, go study Google, go study Amazon, go study, go study uh, Apple, go study the internet, go study Nike, go study Nike, go study Bitcoin, by the way, go study AI, go study some of these things that are, could literally change our worlds and start looking at what year they are. Are they in the, are they in your seven? Are they in your 15 or are they in your 30? Seven years to have success, 15 years to have mass success, overnight, overnight success, you'd almost call it 30 years to change the world, Right. So what I would say to anybody out there is that know where you're at in the cycle of success. Know where you are. Are you on year three going towards year 15? Do you have the discipline towards go, to hit 15 years, to hit 30 years? Again, depending on what you want to do. You might only say, I only want to hit seven years and hit good success, and I'm good. Maybe I want to hit 15 years. Maybe I want to hit 30 years. All I know is for me, and this ties back into the answer to your question, this may be a good mic drop ending point, is that I know I'm disciplined enough, and I know my goal wasn't 15 years. My goal was 30 years because I was looking for a change in the world, not just world down, not just being success. I want to change the world. So my goal is 30 years, not just 15. So I got 15 more years left, and we'll see where that 15 years brings. Dude, let's go. So, Mic truck. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, man. I had so much fun uh, getting to know you from this perspective, and there's a lot of nuggets in there for mm. our followers. And so you up for coming back? Yeah, just let me know whenever. Love it, love it. All right, Antonio. So we'll, we'll, we'll try to type next time. We'll, we'll spend, we spend the first seven years of my, my, my mastery of failure. Maybe the next time we'll spend the next eight years towards the, the overnight success portion of it, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. then just call, success. And then just call me back 15 more years, so we'll see. That, <laughs> see where you're at. See change the world part. That 30-year change the world part happens. Hey, I like that. I like yeah, that. Yeah, no, place. if you guys enjoyed it, uh, make sure you do, you know, give us our feedback. Comment down below. Let us know if there's any other topics or anything that you want Jared to go more in depth into the next time we have him here on the episode. Yeah. And, uh, as always, you know, thank you so much for all the support. We're so, so excited for some of our up and coming guests. I can't say who we're going to have in here, but we have some, uh, some people that, uh, are changing the world. We have some people in, in, uh, some very cool spaces. Like again, you know, that's our goal is we're making sure that we're trying to reach other industries. We're not just trying to stick it, to, to real estate, we, we want to make sure that we're getting a, a good range of, of, go ahead. One final point that I want to say, when I say, um, and I want to say this actually for anybody out there listening, here's the final nugget here. For anybody that I say change the world, understand the world is what you make it. So just so I say, like, the world can be your, kill, your kids and your family, or the world could be the city of Des Moines, or the world could be the state of Iowa, or the world could be the United States, or the world could be the entire freaking world. But just so you know, when, I, when you say change the world, like, just so you know, that world is wherever you put that meaning towards that word of the, the word world. Yeah. And again, the world is your oyster, right? World's your oyster. <laughs> so yeah, definitely. Uh, um, you know, we have some some very cool guests lined up. So make sure you stay tuned for all of that. If you're not following us on our social media, we are posting behind the scenes uh, content on there, exclusive content. So make sure you check us out over on Instagram and Facebook. It's going to be Filling Ads Up Podcast is our at handle. So. Uh, if you want some exclusive content or you want to message us on there, we're, we'll reply. I, I promise we will respond to you guys. And uh, if you are new, make sure you like and subscribe this video. Make sure you follow our podcast and we'll see you next time. See ya.
Thanks for tuning in with us on this episode of Failing Ads Up. Till next time.